Um, we actually went and visited you. Uh, you were super weird, but that's fine. I get it. Why was um, I weird? It's very. You were a little weird. Why was uh, I weird? You were the weird one. You were a little weird, but you were a hundred percent weird. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster in San Diego, California. Yeah, finally. Um, and you are Cassidy Robinson, and you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And we are going to be cleaning up our slate before the next episode we put out, which is going to be our top tens of the year and for this episode we are going to be talking about avatar the way of the water glass onion and knives out mystery and apollo 10 and a half a space age childhood for the streaming homework so this is a big episode for the colon <laughs> yeah i didn't uh, intend yeah. that but that is what has happened <laughs> that's right um <laughs> the MacGuffin, a movie review podcast is the colon coming uh, back? I feel like the colon has been in fashion for a while now because I feel like uh I feel like just slapping two on like a sequel is is not in fashion. I I feel like no. the colon of like the standalone sequel is kind of the thing right now and I'm not mad at that. No, the really annoying thing is the soft reboot they just call it the same exact thing, like Halloween, the Batman. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't yeah. like that. Scream, Halloween, like... As an archivist, no, well, as a non-professional it, it, archivist, it, 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 makes me, it makes me nervous. Well, here's the thing, is you're doing away with the letter two, or, mm. you know, whatever letter. You're doing away with the colon, but what you're doing is adding uh, parentheses. So it's not just Halloween... Like, that's not what it is. It's Halloween parentheses 2018. Well, that's what it's, that's how you find it on Google. That's the SEO. But that's what I mean. Like, that's how we archive things now, right? Like, that's how we keep track of that kind of, like, it's not Scream 5. It's not Scream. It's Scream 2022. It's awful. It's what it is. Yeah. It must stop. And, And, that isn't taken into consideration when they're naming this shit, because, like, I've already seen Scream. Right. I've seen it a bunch. I love Scream. I have not seen Scream 5. I guess their reasoning or their rationale is, if you're talking with your friends, and you say, you know, what, what was a movie you really loved this year, and you say, Scream, you're probably going to say, oh, I really like the new Scream. Sure. So call it the new Scream. That's a better title. Could yeah. you imagine if the Dark Knight, or just give it a new name, right? Like, because could could you imagine if the Dark Knight was called Batman Begins Two? No, I couldn't. I mean, so that gets into a whole separate issue because Batman Begins was sort of a. I mean, it was a hard reset of the franchise. It had. Canonically, nothing to do with 
the first four mm-hmm. Batmans, Batmen, but they were still titling it like the others. Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Batman Begins. Yeah, it's a and so had they had kept going with that, you know, the Dark Knight wouldn't have been the Dark Knight. It would have been like Batman versus Joker. So I don't know what the fuck they would have called it. But at least at least Batman Revolutions. Batman, <laughs> at least the Batman added the as right. a distinguishing feature. But as we know, leave off the the because it's cleaner. Yeah, but in this case, no, because I want to know whether you're talking about the uh, Pattinson version or the Keaton version, and I don't want to have to say, you know, the Batman with Robert Pattinson. Which is what will forever be known as. Or it will be known as the Batman. Extra emphasis on, on the, yeah. Yeah. Or if you're a film nerd, Matt Reeves' Batman. Let's go ahead and start talking about the movies. What do you want to start with? Glass Onion or Avatar? Let's start with the big dog. Let's just get it out of the way. Uh, let us, let's talk about Avatar, the way of water. Not Avatar 2. Avatar, the way of water. I respect it. I do too. I respect the colon situation in their Oh, I, I prefer colon to any other, as long as it's not the darkness rising darkness. Um, and if you notice, in Avatar Way of the Water, they did away with the papyrus font in the poster, but still very much in the subtitles of the movie. <laughs> yeah. My favorite thing is, like, you know that they redid that entire logo just because of that one SNL sketch. Right. Incredible. You know what font I see a lot that doesn't get called out enough that I'm I'm going to put it on blast right now is the American Horror Story font. A little overused. Yeah. I Well, I see it all the time, and it's so weird and kind of distinct but clearly just like you know it's this font that everybody has access to that i just think it's kind of funny keep your eye out for the american horror story font you'll Mm. see it more often than you think yeah for my brief stint as a graphic designer uh one of the three fonts i was allowed to use uh called lobster which is a a uh, type of sort of fancy-ish looking font, like not quite cursive, but not, but to allude to that, I see it yeah. everywhere, and it bugs the fuck out of me because forced to use it for eight months. Mm, that's fair. So in two thousand nine, there was this film called Avatar, made by James Cameron, and it had been a long time since he had made a movie at that time. Because his previous film was Titanic in 97, so a little over 10 years. And now it's been a little over 10 years since the first Avatar. Uh, Although now they're supposed to be kind of rolling out one after the other, because he sort of made the last three or four, I don't know how many of these things are supposed to be, but uh, he's kind of making them simultaneously. The story returns us to the planet of Pandora, 
where the humans have come to destroy and pillage the native peoples of Pandora, known as the Navi, these uh, 12-foot blue cat-looking people, who have similarities to certain tribes across the globe, whether it be uh, Amazonian or African or or Native American, sort of mix between all of the above. Uh, and in this one, Jake Sully, who was the hero of the original Avatar, who was once a human and then permanently became a Navi citizen through this technology of putting his mind inside of a Navi body that they grew in a lab. And he fell in love with Zoe Saldana's character, uh, Natiri, and they did Pocahontas and or Dances with Wolves. And he joined them to fight the humans and lived at peace with the Navi. Well, years later, Stephen Lang's character comes back, who was thought to have been killed in the last movie. But he had kept his memories or his uh, personality on a thumb drive somewhere and uploaded that to a Navi body so that he could come and seek revenge against Jake Sully and his new Navi family and Navi children. And to keep the violence away from the rest of the village, they go to the oceans and learn how to live amongst the ocean tribes, which are a little bit Less Amazonian, a bit more like Maori, a little bit more like Pacific Islander flavored in this film. And they learn the way of the water, Keith. Yes, they do. One of the major subplots here is that there is a human living amongst them who was the biological child of Stephen Lang's character, who became like a sort of a... In between person, like culturally, he is Navi, but he is still in a human form. But so he has to walk around with a breathing apparatus and whatnot. He doesn't get one of those cool 12 foot bodies, which they don't actually really explain why. But um, there's other scientists who kind of stayed along during the Reformation period after the Sky People, aka the human industrialist colonialists, left to try and patch things up. And this kid is now forced into a situation where he's kidnapped by Stephen Lang and is trying to connect with his father or, or perhaps sort of turn him because he sees that there might be a path toward that. Um, And I suppose the tension of the film is, will he be able to shake the evil colonial revenge out of his father figure before they reach Jake Sully and his family with the Way of the Water tribe. There's also a bunch of stuff with whales. There's also a bunch of stuff with uh, (laughs) Sigourney Weaver playing her own bastard child and connecting with the entire planet. I mean, this is like a three and a half hour long movie. There's they throw everything at the wall here. Well, that's you're right, and and I think there's, I think what he's doing here is he's creating something like a hub with many different ports to these upcoming sequels. So he starts these little 
plot threads that are supposed to go in their own direction. Um, and in the biz, they call that world building, I guess. No, I think that's more plot mechanics. I'd say the world building is like, hey, look, this planet also has whales. That's world building. <laughs> this, uh, in, in, in terms of the screenplay and, you know, introducing all these different elements where, where Stephen Lang is, has this strange relationship with his child, which might be entirely utilitarian or might also be genuine. That's a plot direction that things could go. Uh, there's this whole thing with uh, Sigourney Weaver's daughter, question mark, who has some sort of psychic neurological problem when she tries to connect with her like headband tail thing to the trees or whatever the fuck. Um, and she might end up becoming like the Jean Grey of this world. There's these little plot elements that sort of run and then kind of taper off without resolving. And, I, and if I'm being generous, it's because I'm, I think there's, there's movies for these ideas. If I'm not being generous, then it's, they're throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. Here's what I find interesting about this film. They somehow managed to recreate the plot of the first one about an outsider being accepted into this uh, tribe that he doesn't understand and eventually mm. like becoming its leader. They somehow managed to do that again, right. but this time just with like his whole family. <laughs> Instead of you know a space marine becoming a blue person, now it's uh, blue people becoming slightly green people. <laughs> um, but still the idea is the same outsider having to like adopt this culture in order to become like one with it, but then also somehow being the best at it. than and then any of the other people, I don't know. Also in this movie, it's not just Jake Sully and Natiri. It is, you know, it, it's, it's like the fast and furious movies. It's all about family. You know? Yeah. He is like and five so kids. because of that they introduce <laughs> uh Sigourney Weaver's character who is an adopted child plus this spider kid plus two other sons like teen boys uh, plus, yeah yeah plus two other sons uh plus one other daughter so there's like a whole bunch of kid avatars running around This movie also makes no apologies for the fact that it's how many years later? No, like, kind of recap, really, or anything. Mm -hmm. If you hadn't seen the first one, you'd have no idea why the fuck this movie was even called Avatar. Which, I sure, I guess is fine. I don't know. I mean, they, they did re-release the first Avatar in theaters to the lead-up of the release of Way of the Water. I okay. guess did so that watch to it? catch people up. I did not. Yeah, did um, you watch it? When was the last time you watched Avatar? The first one. Like 2010 when it was on Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah. I saw uh, it in wow, theater. Even... I saw it in theater once. I watched it again on Blu-ray and I have not seen it since. You're doing better than me. I saw it the one time in theater and I would wager that the majority of the movie going audience is similarly. For like the first 15 minutes, I was just going, what the fuck? Oh, yeah. What? What? 
Oh, okay. I guess he was the bad guy. I, that's right. He was the bad guy. Uh, yeah. Who are all the other bad guys? I don't remember them. Okay. I guess they're just bad guys. Whatever. Uh, okay. That's right. They can like connect with the animals with their. T- oh, uh, wait. What? <laughs> I don't remember that. Like that was my whole first, at least half hour of this movie. There really isn't that much to remember, though. I mean. All the, the you might forget I mean, some of the some p- stuff. There's I. Why is Sigourney Weaver in a tube? I don't know. I barely remember Sigourney Weaver in the first movie. I remember the old bastard who looks like Cable. I don't remember his whole crew of roughnecks. I remember Jake Sully in the braid sex. Like that's, you know what I mean? Like yeah, I think I think that's all you really need. <laughs> okay, I mean. There, I think there's something to this movie where, yeah, I would have appreciated maybe just like a, not that the movie's uh, having any issue with runtime, but I would have appreciated maybe like a five minute, you know, uh, or even less, like like one of those uh, Star Wars scrollers or something, just yeah, to kind of catch us back a, up. A previously on. Yeah, or or like a, some cool opening credits that just cut us like the most important scenes of the first movie. But we you know, to some I, extent I guess we kind of get that a little bit with uh, Jake Sully's narration. Like right. he does do yeah. kind of a little bit of a recap, but it I don't know. It was it was a lot to take in at once. For the abundance of plot in this movie, I did not feel like there was an abundance of story, <laughs> which was sort of the complaint of the first one um, mm-hmm. by a lot of people. But I think for the type of story that the first one was, in that it was so familiar, it's a, such a archetypal hero's journey that we have seen over and over and over again, whether it be Fern Gully or, or Pocahontas or, or The Last Samurai or Jetsons the movie. Go back and look at it. It takes a very uh, easy framework to just change the skin on and put your well, own world the, building I feel like into. The first one is very much it, it's it's a vehicle to show off the technology, right? Like it is. Yeah. Here's a bunch of shit. Here's a bunch of stuff just to show off like what we can do. And right, this one is similar in that they're trying to show how like. The technology has expanded, and uh, we'll get into that in just a second. But it's also like we're all, we're trying to add all of this world building and all of this stuff that I guess is is fine, but it, it, I don't know. But here's the it, thing: it just, back in like 2012 or something, when he was starting to write this movie, and we first heard, "Oh, this one's going to take place in the ocean world." Just from that information alone, if you would come to me and said, what happens, what's going to happen in this movie, I feel like I wouldn't have been too far off from what we got. I mean, yeah, there's the particulars of the kids and what they do or whatever, but yeah, it is just kind of like Avatar plus Ocean. Here's the thing. I I kind of feel like if you're going to do that, like, why force this story that kind of nobody cares about and isn't really a thing? Like, just if you just want to make a weird documentary about the blue people on the fake planet, just do that. 
I don't know. Well, I, he he he's uh, James Cameron has famously made a couple ocean documentaries. I mean, he's a oceanophiliac, you know. Sure. So he he and, made and honestly, this he made one, one about the bottom of the Titanic around the time Titanic came out. He also did another one that's just about deep sea something or other. I don't know. Um, well, and in that sense, I this mean, this, this goes all the way back. Sense. This obsession goes all the way back to like Piranha Two: The Spawning, his first unofficial film, and then into uh, The Abyss, which I've never seen. Have you seen The Abyss? Mm-hmm. It's very hard to find. Time. I think it's like in between contracts. It's like nowhere streaming in it. No, I think it's uh, out of print on DVD. It's a whole thing. Um, in the, in that sense, this movie makes more makes more sense than the first one because it does deal with his like sort of obsessions with the ocean and and all of that stuff. And yeah, I mean, if we're talking the visual elements, which I feel like is you know is kind of the big showcase of an Avatar movie. Yeah, it, I mean, it looks great. There were sometimes now I saw this. I don't know about your viewing experience. I saw in the big, like, Dolby digital screen in 3D, because I was like, it's an Avatar movie. Sure, uh, yeah. I, you know, I I would like to see it as uh, and maximized as possible. Right. Um, and there were moments, there were, like, sequences, little cuts that looked like they had this, like, motion smoothing effect. And See, I don't know if that was because of the 3D. No, this, I don't know what it's from exactly, but I have heard it's from a, it's a, it's an accelerated frame rate um, that the movie was shot in. Uh, the same thing happened with um, uh, the first Hobbit movie. It was shot on 4K uh, or I forget, like it's some large frame rate. And a lot of people complained about it at that time as having that weird sort of motion smoothing effect or soap opera effect or whatever. Now, did you? I, I didn't that? notice that. No, I, I I saw it in 3D as well, but I I I don't think I didn't see it IMAX 3D. I think I saw maybe regular it has 3D. Maybe it has something to do with the large format. Then I don't. I don't yeah, know I think there are certain there are certain screenings where it's formatted. I think if you see it in IMAX 3D, which is the most you can pay to see it right now, um, then you it could have that effect. And I was warned about it, and I I've hmm. seen some amount of discussion about it online, but I didn't I didn't notice that. The only issue I really had with with the movie no, visually, I, I definitely experienced it. Well, that, that um, sorry, that's interesting. But the only issue I had with it is that it's been a long time since I've seen a movie in 3D because I generally try not to. But I with you, Same. It was, it also like, I feel like there are just not as many 3D releases as there. No, were. I mean that's I that's kind of yeah. That's not, that's I'll bring that up in a second. But uh, no, the main issue I had with it is that the glasses really dim the lighting of the movie to to a distracting oh. level like i there were certain scenes that, that where that might have it was, been a, a your theater thing because it could have uh, been cuz they're supposed I to didn't. adjust for that in the uh, projector they and 
it has been known that a lot of times a lot a lot of like the AMCs or Regals or whatever the places that are run by teenagers mm-hmm. they uh, the managers don't want to pay to replace the bulbs in in their projectors so they'll tell them to run them at a lower luminescence uh to make the bulb last longer which is actually counterintuitive because it makes it go out faster but People are stupid and don't know what they're doing. And I believe it might have been the first Avatar when James Cameron sent a uh, a letter with all of the prints or whatever digital file to these theaters that said, this film was shot with da-da-da-da-da-da-da specs. It is meant for this type of lighting. Turn it all the fucking way up. Um, Interesting. So that might have been an issue is that the... the my theater just wasn't playing the or, or or turning the projector bulb as high as it should go. I can't confirm or deny that. But what I can confirm is there were certain scenes where I, I, I just took the glasses off for a second to see what it looked like, the difference. And it was very noticeable, <laughs> like to the point where I was like, I'd almost rather watch this movie half blurry and get the full lighting. Yeah, then I, I then feel like that watch was definitely it like I'm watching it through theater thing. Yeah, and maybe it's different if I had gone to the IMAX ones or whatever. But um, yeah, so the um, here, as far as the brightness goes, it was fine. It was that was not an issue. I just I noticed that motion, that motion uh, blurring or whatever effect that you get on TVs. And it was only for certain scenes, and that's what's strange. You know, like some of the higher action scenes or whatever. Um, I got kind of used to it, but it was annoying. Um, but other than that, you know, like, of course, this movie's gorgeous. Like, yeah. the, av- the avatars look better than ever. Uh, the CGI is practically flawless. Like... You know, I will give the movies credit for that. They are a visual feast. They are stunning to look at. The 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 characters are designed uh bizarrely, but very well. Um the new ocean creatures are really cool and you know, this is the best uh underwater effects I've ever seen in a movie. And and um I was very impressed by the underwater effects for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, all the stuff with uh, Atlantis and Namor, Mm -hmm. I I thought was really well done. But this kind of blows it out of the water. Um, All the stuff in Aquaman will look like a joke in comparison. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. The mechanics that goes into making a movie like this, it, it literally takes a small army to... To be able to well, get just it. I, and and that's I feel like what the true interest here is. It's it's the story right. is kind of just boilerplate. Sure, we'll th- we'll throw whatever odds and ends together. You know, I I feel like I feel like with both Avatar movies, we're getting like a first, maybe second draft of the script because um, it's just a mechanic to get the cool stuff to get the the. You know, the visuals, the these, like, to push those envelopes. And as far as that goes, these movies deliver on an unimpeachable level. Like, it looks amazing. It looks incredible. My only um, issue with, with the movie design-wise, 
Um, and this is, has nothing to do with the effects. This is purely on the design. It's the Navi characters. They all kind of look the same. Well, that's always been a problem. That's always been a weird... Just the Navi are just the most bizarrely designed things. I, I think... I know, but I mean, I know. to the point where I'm watching the movie, especially with the kids, and I'm like, which one well, are you again? Being fucking racist. <laughs> there was a whole, like, uh, tweet campaign about Blueface, but I won't get into that. Well, yeah, that's silly because they're not real. They're not. It's not a re- sure. Whatever. Uh, that's. I won't get sure. into that. Uh, yeah. But what I mean is, like, I think it was Red Letter Media when they reviewed this many, many years ago. The first one, they mm-hmm. described they have Disney eyes. Yes, they absolutely do. And and that was part of part of the reason I, is to make them endearing and to uh-huh. and and to also kind of undo that. That weird mocap dead eye thing, which I think is actually smart. But the problem is that when you have 20 of these characters on screen at the same time, um, you're looking for any little thing that can distinguish one from the other. So it's like, well, and and in in that case, uh, <coughs> I'm actually going to defend the design a little bit because I could tell them apart pretty well, like. There was the one son who was a little skinnier and he had like the braid that hung down in his face and the other son was not. And then there was the one that looks and talks and sounds exactly like Sigourney Weaver for some reason. And then there were the new ones, which were like a lighter shade of blue. And they had all the tattoos and the tattoos made them way easier to distinguish. Right. The uh, Maori so like, the Maori tattoos. They also have kind of a, like a, a fin or gill or something on their arms that, that are a little bit different. Yeah. And they have like a thicker tail. And the bad wish- avatars were all dressed up in military gear, which made them easier to tell apart. Like... I yeah, actually think when you literally have from a design, you have sense. a uh, uh, an avid, uh, a, a Navi in like a backwards hat in Oakley's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but again, from a design sense, that actually made is smart because it instantly yeah. makes them recognizable as you know as other as as these sort of invader types. Like I I I think the Navi design itself is very bizarre and strange but sure weird 12 foot tall cat people with giant eyes um but i i think this movie does a pretty good job of making each character individualized and um uh, and making them stand out as much as you can right um where yeah. i mean it's it's a weird. minor complaint it's i i was basically able to follow it but there's there were times when i was i was working a little hard to do so but what I don't think every character has is something that makes them interesting. No, um, not at all. Unfortunately, yeah. the my issue with it is that as a movie, um, if it, if this is just a showcase for technology, that's fine. You know, to an extent, that's James Cameron. You know, mm-hmm. just look at the difference in yeah. tone, in tone, and in in execution between alien and aliens you know yeah look at it between terminator and terminator 2 like terminator well, he did 2 both of is those. a watershed moment for visual <laughs> effects right i mean he did both of those movies but yes there's a 
I think as he's gone no, on. But no, but what I'm saying is is that has always been a thing of his is progressing the technology is making right. That's it. something that he's into, and, and something in that generation of filmmakers who saw the analog to digital transition and worked within it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were a lot of them who got really freaked the fuck out when they saw how many people couldn't make that leap, and so if they managed to somehow survive it then they made it their mission to be the best at it and to always be on top of it to the point where their interest in story started to become less and less and less. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what we've seen with with Lucas. That's what we've seen with Robert Zemeckis. That's what we've seen with James Cameron. And to a lesser extent, but uh, arguably sometimes – Steven Spielberg. Um, and, and yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, James Cameron has, has no issue with, with uh, spectacle and, and grandiosity. And I think he's actually pretty good at that. But well, and just in general, I think his visual storytelling it has always been top of the class. Like, really, he has always pushed the envelope. He has always been like, you know, uh, you will always see an asterisk, a footnote next to his name being like, well, he progressed technology this far and this and this, and he did this and that, you know, like, right. And I think this is no exception. Like this movie looks incredible. Like it is just the story lacks a lot. I mean, I, who gives a fuck? Who gives a shit if Jake Sully lives or dies? Who gives a shit? What is about any of this like sure Uh, right and i look at it and i try and and i try and find like where are the points of narrative tension like where where am i supposed to care uh jake soley is still an insanely boring character uh more so now than he was before if this movie was meant to be like a generational saga which i think is the plan Mm-hmm. Uh, he should have died, you know, within that first encounter with the evil avatars, right? Like, like let's move on. Jake Sully isn't that important. Let's get past this chosen one story. Let's pass the torch. You know, that that's how that story is told. Story Zoe Saldana's character, Natiri, is practically... Uh, she was a huge part of the last movie. She's pretty much reduced into this, like crying, weeping, barely there character. You know, as soon as she starts fighting, it's There's like, like two scenes oh, of, of that. There's two yeah, scenes I- where she like goes to battle. The rest of the movie, she's either scolding the children or crying because somebody just died. Yeah. There is a lot of... Yeah, her character is basically for... Well, her character and Jake Sully's character, as boring as he is, are basically forgotten. Uh, they're yeah. just kind of there like this movie's really about the kids it is and so the, to me the and, me and the, if you're gonna do that just let it be about the kids like let's move on let's let's progress the story let's move past the bullshit from the first one the only part of the story that caught my attention of oh mm-hmm. okay this is actually like kind of interesting this is actually like character stuff um, was all the stuff with like the renegade whale and the the yes um, black sheep son like yes to me that was like the that's the what movie this movie's about 
That's yeah. the movie, but it's all second act slosh, basically. Yeah. Right? Like, it's the the narrative tension, the, be- the, the place where the movie works the best is really just to bridge us between set pieces. Um, but that's what the movie should have tightened in on. It should have pulled its focus away from the mm-hmm. world building a little bit and and gotten us more into that idea of this these two father-son stories and how they parallel each yeah. other. That Absolutely. is what this movie is, but I'm not sure if the movie knows that that's what it is. No, absolutely does not. It's just like again, I feel like it's just sort of throwing everything at the wall. I am it on team fine. giant whale though. I liked I, I did like the kind of free willy happening in the middle of the movie. No, I I agree <laughs> that was definitely like the most compelling part of the movie and and I think the only sort of emotional storytelling in the movie without absolutely trying to force emotion. You know what I mean? Like there's of course, there's beats where characters die and characters are in peril and stuff like that that is obviously like trying to force feelings. But when those characters have barely been on screen and you can't distinguish them from whatever, like, doesn't matter. The only part of the story that I found was compelling was these t- sort of two black sheep characters of these like larger family units connecting. Like, that is interesting. That's a compelling story. And then when you have the third black sheep character that's like, you know, may or may not be turning on the dark. Like, there's stuff there. There's some juice. But yeah. the movie did not know how to squeeze that juice. Well, I mean, I I think they know this movie's probably written by like a team of screen, screenwriters, at least uncredited. But, I mean, it shows that it's it's written by... Yeah, there's one, two, three, four, five credited screenwriters on this movie. And I feel like yeah. they all kind of got their input. You know, everyone got to create their own gremlin. And <laughs> yeah, we have competing storylines. The workaround was, well, we'll get to that in the sequel or in the next one. Well, you know, this is building that. You know, they're kind of trying well, I, to I sort think- of Marvel Universe this within its own little world i think the the solution to that their screenwriting solution to that was uh we have an unlimited budget and this movie will make whatever we spend on it back times 12 so who gives a shit let's just throw let's just do it all let's make a three and a half hour long movie right which i guess in nowadays that's not that long for people but dear lord that's half a season of television. Like, this movie's yeah. long. And I felt it. Especially at the end, once we get to all that, like, action-y stuff. Mm-hmm. I was fine when we were just exploring this underwater world, because I was like, it, it was pretty, and there was new stuff to discover. But once we get to, like, the action, you know, when the kids are being held hostage for a third time, I'm like, <laughs> can we just wrap this up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. It like I said, if uh if you had asked me what happens in Avatar Way of the Water 5 years ago, I felt like I probably could have given you at least half of this plot just by the title alone. Like there's it's not very deep. Um it, it, neither was the first one. It feels neither like was the of- first one. Yeah. I I actually and I have heard a lot of people say 
I, you know, I, oh, I hated the first one, but this one is so much better. I think it's kind of a lateral move. It's it's not really mu- that much better or worse. Personally, I think the first one as a story works a little bit better just because it's such a tried and true well, it's uh, so archetypal hero's yeah. journey. Whereas this one is a little messier. And maybe there's things that are more interesting because of that. But I think it's six of one, half a dozen the other. So I give the movie a B minus because there's stuff that works. It's Mm -hmm. not a terrible time at the theater, but it's probably not something I'm going to revisit. And I, I didn't leave jumping out of my seat exhilarated. I'm I'm torn on this one because I I feel like on the one hand like again the technologically speaking I, this is an A you know this is an A plus like visually speaking this is one of the most insane movies I've seen it is it, it, it again I could have just spent the entire 3 hour runtime living in this underwater navi world that would have been fine the story and all of that sucks. Like it's, it's like not compelling at all. So I, I think I'm about the same place with you. A B minus, I think sounds fair. Um, and I think it could have been bumped up to a B plus just by shaving off 40 minutes of runtime. Yeah. And yes. And specifically, uh, pulling focus into what narratively works. Yeah, there's, expand there that so much... stuff and pull back on the sequel building and the world building. Exactly. There's so much uh, plot and, and just story threads that should have made the cutting room floor um, that just unfortunately made it into the final cut. And if this mo- I, I almost I almost want to give this a C plus just because it's too much. It's too long. It it. it I don't know. But C plus B minus, that's that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, me too. It could kind of go either way for me. Uh, let's go yeah. ahead and talk then about the other sequel, and that is Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. And I know that uh, Ryan Johnson was not happy that the studio forced that title upon him, but... Uh, because he just wanted to call it Glass Onion, but they were worried that people wouldn't know it was a Knives Out deal unless they explicitly said so in the title. Uh, I actually don't hate that, although I do wish it would have been like a Benoit Blanc mystery. Um, I think that would have confused people even more. But In Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, uh, billionaire entrepreneur uh, Miles Braun, played by Edward Norton, this is uh, during COVID. Everybody's bored and locked up. And so he wants to throw a murder mystery party with his old crew of of cohorts, his old group of friends. So he es- invites people to this private island uh, called the Glass Onion, where he built a tribute to this old bar where they used to hang out um, where uh, Kate Hudson, who plays Birdie J, a famous uh, former model, Dave Batista plays Duke Cody, who is this uh, like 
somewhere between Joe Rogan and Alex Jones. Uh, Catherine Hahn, who is an aspiring politician. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr., who is Miles Brand's, like, top actual scientist. And Janelle Monet, who is his former partner. Um, they all get invited to this private island for this murder mystery. And uh, also, for the first time, uh, an outsider is included, who is the famed detective Benoit Blanc, who at first it is assumed that he is there as, uh, you know, another sign of excess for this billionaire. I don't want to give too much away about the actual story, but uh, when they are there for this private murder mystery experience, some things are learned and an actual murder occurs. Uh, and it's a who done it and a why done it and a how done it um, to co- sort of figure out of all these casting characters who had the motive and who uh, in 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 all of this. Um, Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc has to piece together the actual murder mystery uh, aside from the supposed game that was set up. Right. And him being the ultimate outsider because he wasn't initially involved with this group before they became famous as elite influencers in their field. And it it does become some kind of a mystery of, like, how he even became a part of this group and how he got an invite in the first place. Right. So there's mystery upon mystery, uh, like an onion. There are many layers. And, you know, when that first one came out and was this sort of surprise success, you know, because at the time it wasn't based on any kind of property, uh... And it was a lot of times this type of thing doesn't work. They try you. There's usually like two or three attempts at one of these star-studded, old-timey, dark comedy mystery things that comes out, and they usually flop embarrassingly hard, almost to the point where that genre itself has become a red flag. Like, if I see 12 people in funny mustaches and wigs that I'm, who are fam- very, very famous on their own, I go, oh, this isn't going to be good. Like, there's no possible way this is going to be a good movie. <laughs> and usually that is yeah. the case. But in with this movie, it did very well and was surprisingly good. And there was a lot of talk about how, oh, it's, you know, it's kind of like Clue and uh, the, we, we've talked Are about you talk, this. You're talking about the first Knives Out. Yeah, the out first now, Knives right? Out that came out mm-hmm. in, what was that, 2018? Yeah, that sounds about right. And this movie's even more explicitly like Clue. <laughs> Both, uh, you know, metatextually and uh, there's lots of references to it. So they're really leaning into that hard. Also, I thought one of the things that was really interesting about the original Knives Out was... Ryan Johnson, who had just come out of making a divisive Star Wars film in The Last Jedi, had dealt with this mounting online hatred of a, of a certain type of fan group or a subset of that fan group. And I really felt like he, with Knives Out, 
kind of got to the bottom of that a little bit. Like he sort of touched upon what was happening culturally without being overly uh, on the nose about that. Uh, this movie definitely leans into that more as well. I mean, it's very easy to see, you know, this is sort of a, a class critique, um, but also like specifically the Edward Norton character is modeled very much after any kind of number of tech billionaires of the, of the Musk, Bezos, Zuckerberg yeah, persuasion. Say, any any type of number, but I feel like there's a couple that are specifically targeted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, Kate, To you me, know, it was somewhere between Elon Musk and um, Zuckerberg. Yeah, it's about like 40, 40 60 on the, on the mix yeah. between the two. Yeah. Um, uh, Kate Hudson's character is like always on the, it's like this loudmouth aging model who's always on the verge of being canceled and has turned that into part of her brand. Dave Batista is a, like a Twitch streamer, edgy. Yeah, he's, he's in air quotes, uh, meninist. Yes. So, I mean, uh, we're recording this on the day that Andrew Tate has been and his brother have been arrested <laughs> in Romania. And there's a lot of Tate-esque qualities to this character, as well as what well, you mentioned, Joe Rogan and, and like any of the doofuses who go on this podcast. Um, I've never, um, I've never heard of Andrew Tate before today, by the way, and I felt like my life was better for it. He was mostly like big on TikTok, but he had a moment. Yep, so okay. yeah, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of this movie's definitely a lot more explicit about saying this is about what's going on in the culture and the culture wars. And mm -hmm. early on in the movie, I felt like it might've been a little heavy handed, but once the plot kind of kicks in and it starts to get more into the fun and games aspect of, you know, the who's who of it all yeah. and the motives. And there are also certain things that aren't, as they appear and like once once we start getting into like the twists and sure and the plot the plot gets like you know there's all these characters that are caricatures yeah they're seemingly one dimensional but i feel like as the story unfolds we and we learn more about them and their motives and to the credit of the cast i think that they reveal themselves a little bit more than just what their thing is or what they are supposed yeah. to represent. And uh, I ended up uh, coming away from this pretty positively, but not without reservations. Oh, interesting. I So I actually think I liked this more than the first one. Um, hmm. I, I remember the first one, I liked it uh, quite a bit, but I, I didn't, Something kind of held itself at arm's length with me. It, it, that one felt kind of like a murder mystery that was deconstructed. Yeah. Um, and this one, I feel like, plays into the genre a, a, a little more. Um, a, a little more. It's a little more playful than the first one, even though that one was pretty playful as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah, I, I liked that. This one kept me guessing in ways that the first movie didn't. And when I watch a murder mystery, like, that's part of the appeal, you know, is 
is trying to figure out all the clues and keep up with all of the red herrings and, you know, plot devices. And I felt like this one had just enough of that that I was like, oh, my theory was sort of right, but also very wrong. And and I felt like the first one kind of avoided that a little bit more. It, it felt like a murder mystery in reverse. Um, and And this one felt just more like it was playing into the genre conventions. And sure. I liked that a lot. There's a certain subversion though in this one as well. Sure. Like, yeah. I mean, I think it's he wants with- you to have fun with the genre of it. He wants you to be keeping notes in your head and, and, and uh, misdirecting you. But I, I do think there's a point and sort of the, the theme of the movie, this idea of the glass and, you know, there's many layers, but it's all transparent. Um, oh yeah, is is sort of the the ultimate subversion of the genre is that it's not you're you're spending way too much time thinking about the hot, the who's and the what's and stuff because it's all right in front of you. Sure, which yeah. actually I think plays along really well with the the more subtextual themes of the movie about you know the the culture wars and the. And the class politics and and all of that stuff. I think that theme, the theme and the story are actually, they find harmony with each other, even if it takes a little bit, a little bit of time to get there, just because there's so many people to introduce us to. But yeah, I think my reservations come from some of the tropes in terms of the use of red herrings. And I don't want to give them away, obviously, because this is and like any kind of murder mystery or whodunit or whatever. There's um, the less you know, the better. But there's a few of them where it's kind of lazy writing devices. I don't love their utility in this movie, even if he's kind of winking and nodding at the camera, being like, ah, I'm doing one of those wacky writing devices that you know we've seen in these type of these type of like puro agatha christie type things before i i'm i am a little curious specifically what you're talking about because i i think i disagree i i don't know i just had fun with this movie from beginning to end like i thought it it did take me a little bit to settle in uh like you were saying it, it is it is a fair bit more sardonic than the first one. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and almost to the point of of total absurdity, like, you know, because he's directly going after this sort of billionaire celebrity class. Yeah. Um, but, you know, how do you be more absurd than these real life people that are absurd? Uh, but as as far as like the murder mystery stuff goes and the red herrings and, and things like that, I th- I don't know. I liked all of that. I thought I thought it paid that off pretty well. Like sort of my original theory going into the movie was correct. And I don't know. I liked that the movie gave us all of these clues and all of these like false possibilities Uh, uh because like you said, you know, this movie ultimately is a glass onion and everything is a lot more obvious than it seems. Um, I, I feel like if you didn't have those sort of murder mystery conventions, that 
isn't as fun. Like it, it just kind of doesn't work without it. No, yeah, and to me, it's it's a, it's the levels of subtlety that we're we're dealing with in terms of when these tropes are are utilized. So, in the case of minute subtleties where there's little bits of dialogue or things that a character says or or a moment that you thought at the beginning of the movie, eh, that's weird, and then you kind of forgot about it, and then it's revealed later. I love those. Those are my favorite types. Okay. But and when it's... I feel like there's a lot of that. Yeah, there there is. They're kind of peppered throughout. But there's also, like, the big machinery of the plot tropes. Specifically with one character, I mean, I'm really trying not to just say it, but there's one character who's holding their cards much closer to their chest than everybody else. And when the the plot twist is revealed around that character about the midway mark, I, I just don't love that trope. I, uh, okay. I think I, the, the actor I, does very, very well with that trope. And I'm taking nothing away from them, but I I I feel like if you need that to make everything else work, uh, maybe not do that. But I think I know what you're talking about, and I think I'm going to disagree with you. I don't know. I I to me, like if there it, isn't um, if there isn't a way to, it's like an escape room. If there is, if there's like literally no way you can figure it out without hitting the buzzer and asking for help, then it doesn't count. As being uh, an effective, an effective yes, twist. It, if that is the overall if mystery it, of the movie, right? Like if it that's isn't. the overall, it isn't. No, it's, it's more not. of a subversion, but it's um, yeah. And I, no, I, I, here's I the just thing. would have I, loved some sort of some sort of gesturing towards that being even a possibility earlier in the movie so that I, it, it would reward in some sort of way rather than the movie just just turning in on itself. I think I'm going to disagree with you on this point. I think that the movie does offer clues that if if you're if you're aware of them, I think it will reward a second viewing. Um uh, and but I also am glad that it wasn't something I could have like I, I know what you're saying. I know what your point is. And I think had it to do with the overall actual mystery, um, I would agree with you. This is, I think, was something different. And I don't know. I, I actually really liked how that, how this particular trope was played out. Uh, I I know what you're talking about now. And I think I could agree with you in a hypothetical sense. But in the actual sense of the context of this movie, I think it it totally worked. I don't think it totally works, but it's not a um, it's not it doesn't break the movie. It doesn't ruin it. I, I, there's a there's sort of a readjustment period um, where you know we come back to the main thread of the plot, and then that's when things kind of really get crazy, and that's when things get a lot of fun. Um, and I'm able to go with it, but you know, it, it's, it's, it's just a very common device. And, and to, to a certain extent, I think that it's 
any of these kinds of red herrings, however pulpy or hokey they might be, this movie's fully aware of that and is employing those very much on purpose. So I'm not I don't I don't think that Ryan Johnson or anybody involved doesn't know it's kind of hokey because there's a certain level of camp to the whole thing. Yeah. Which yeah. I'm fine and, with. And also on that note, like, uh, I I just think that these movies so far, the, the two that we've gotten, the two Knives Out mysteries that we've gotten, um, if nothing else, are a really fun uh, character actor showcase where... Yes. Like, you can just tell that everybody's in it. You know, everybody's sort of giving their A game, but in a fun, playful way. I think that is to the actor's credit, and I think that is to uh, Ryan Johnson as a director's credit. I think he's mm. turning into a real actor's director. And yeah, I which I, I actually think this movie is even stronger in that regard than... The first one, the, I th- I felt like the first one, there were a handful of characters who were very much uh, given the leeway to kind of have fun and explore. And then there were a lot that were there for plot reasons. Um, mm-hmm. In this movie, it feels like everybody, and it's a, maybe a slightly smaller cast, but I feel like everybody, especially the, co- the principal cast, everybody gets to play. And... I love the fact that this movie has all of these incredible female portrayals. Yeah, absolutely. You know, these and wonderful all... roles for women that we don't normally see. Kate Hudson hasn't been this good in years. In decades, no, she's great. And again, just talk about getting a chance to play. And yeah. I think that is a character that could have come away just totally one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Um but she's so fucking good, like that. It's she is just a, a treat to watch. Catherine Hahn, always super reliable. But she's actually this would normally be she would normally kind of play the Kate Hudson role in in any yeah, other person's she, movie. Yeah, but she she I think gets to do a lot of uh, more subtle work. Yeah, she uh, she oftentimes is, a, is sort of the the straight person in the scene. Um, yeah, um, Janelle Monet is. Absolutely fantastic. Stunning. Um, Stunning. Is there not a single moment where she's on screen where she doesn't just draw the energy of the set entirely on her? I've never, I mean, I I have seen, but almost not since like a classic Hollywood sort of way has a movie fully let somebody just demand your attention. The way Janelle oh, Monae does in this movie, and and I, I think um, I think the movie uses that to great effect. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it, it yes, I agree with you completely. Um, I I think Dave Batista, we've seen him. I mean, as far as wrestlers turned actors, he he plays similar notes that you might see in a normal Batista role, but I feel like this movie even like lets him explore a different side of that uh, that is very interesting. This was, I mean, when was the last good Edward Norton role, you remember? Eh, Birdman wasn't that long ago. But, yeah, I mean, Edward Norton can be good. He's been good. He's, this isn't, 
like, again, not the role I would immediately think for him, but he knows exactly how to play it. Yeah. It's somebody who, from the surface, seems very tech billionaire smart. Like, you could you can imagine this person doing a TED Talk, but then you can also imagine them being the most ridiculous surface-level idiot in the green room of that same TED Talk. <laughs> um, Absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, he's probably been in a thousand different Oscar parties with a hundred of these characters. So I'm sure the research was not hard to, to find, to sort of tap into that. <laughs> um, Daniel yeah, Craig, absolutely. I feel like he's really expanded on the role of Benoit. Like yes. Benoit in the first one. Well, I just, I just think in general, uh, between Daniel Craig and Ryan Johnson, they've expanded the character a lot. There are things that are way more interesting about him now than just a sort of the first movie where he was just sort of a, a Southern fried detective. Yeah. Um, now there's there's a lot more. There's new levels. There's a lot more humor in in yeah. his performance here. He he kind of leans into the camp, and I love the the the, the choices of the costume design. I actually, I don't know if this is even in conversation. I would put this movie up against anything I've seen this year uh, in terms of Oscar season on on costuming. Because everybody's character, their costume reveals something about them. I agree. I agree completely. And I think that is almost harder to do with a contemporary movie than than you know like a, a sort of classical um, historical which, you know epic that, or something yeah or sci-fi or fantasy that tends to be what kind of gets rewarded uh in that regard but yeah i think um i agree with you like everything you see on screen everything the characters are wearing tells you exactly who they are uh kate hudson in, <laughs> in, in particular, particular i yeah. think has some of the best costuming in the movie. I agree. Um, Leslie Eldon Jr. as Lionel is probably the most underwritten character, unfortunately. But I don't... I mean, he does well with what he's given. But, you know, everybody else has their... Uh, maybe a stronger presence in the movie, in, in the plot. And he sort of feels second fiddle uh, in whatever scene he's yeah, in. Yeah, I... I think I don't think that is uh, any fault of his. I I think he delivers a solid performance. Yeah, uh, and and I think he does exactly what the script needs him to do, which is to be there and to be a possibility. But when you're dealing with you know just sort of this murderer's row of of actors getting to play characters that are much bigger, mm -hmm. um, I I think a performance like his can go under the radar. Um, but I don't, I, again, I don't think that is, I don't think that's a bad character or a bad performance. I just think it's not as flashy or, or obvious. Yeah, no, I agree. I, it's, there's nothing, his role is fine in the film. I, I just feel like we could have used maybe a scene or just something that sort of give us a little bit more, interest in the character at some point because mm -hmm. he he sort of just 
fades into the background of a lot of scenes. Um, I think I think on some level that's a little intentional, but but I I know what you mean. But yeah, otherwise I think this is a lot of fun. If you still can see it in theater, I would actually advise it because uh, the movie looks great. This is really, really, really well shot. Um, I know I had a, like a limited run, and then it went almost straight to streaming on Netflix. Uh, but I believe there are still some theaters in bigger cities that are showing it. And if people go out and see it, maybe they'll expand the the theatrical run. That would be nice. I think if you like the first Knives Out, you will like this one as well. Um, the coin could be flipped whether or not you prefer the first or second one, though. Someone might prefer aesthetically from one film to the other. Someone might prefer the old estate manor kind of situation of the first one to this private island resort thing. Sure, yeah. And I, but I think that is ultimately a, a testament to to whatever Ryan Johnson is trying to explore here with this murder mystery character, with this uh, murder mystery element, I think, um, I think he definitely knows the genre well enough to play with those conventions to give audiences something that is rewarding and also unexpected. It's sort of a, a testament to how good these movies are that, one person could just be like, yeah, I like the big mansion thing more than the private island thing. And and another person could be like, yeah, but this one was funnier or whatever. To me, that's the sign of a, a, a good movie and a, a good franchise. And mm-hmm. if they keep coming out in the same quality uh, that Knives Out and Glass Onion have been, I could I could handle I could take a thousand more. Uh, adventures with Ben Wablonk. Um, yeah, as he's... long as they continue to explore new new things and give us new um, information, I like that it's a franchise, but both movies stand alone. Like, mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. I give it a B plus. I'm giving this a solid A. I I thought it was a real fun time at the movies, and I think it achieved. All of the things it was going for, and personally, for my money, I, th- I think I enjoyed it more than the first one. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I'd be interested to know where people are on that. Like, if there's there a, a well-tabulated official poll anywhere of, like, which one people like more, I don't know. I, I think it's too fresh for that. Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there's recency bias, the- but... Well, from the people I've talked to, though, actually, uh, most people, most of the people that I have talked to seem to prefer the first one so far, um, which I think is interesting. But I, I, I think it, again, just kind of has that murder mystery skin of, you know, the mansion, the cold weather. Um, right. But I, I think from a genre perspective, this one actually honors the murder mystery genre a, a little bit better than the first one personally all right let's go ahead and move on to the streaming homework now which is also on netflix it was released for netflix earlier in the year and this is richard linklater's uh, apollo 10 and a half a space age childhood uh, this tells the story of stan as a boy in the 60s during the time of the space race 
Um, politically, there's a lot going on outside of his hometown, outside of his purview. You know, in the backdrop, we see the civil rights era happening. We see the JFK assassination. We see the rise of the counterculture, all that kind of 60s nostalgia stuff. But what this sort of hones in on more specifically is that we have this family from Texas, which is where Linklater's from, um, who grew up during this time. And they live in a town in Houston or near Houston, the suburbs, where basically everybody's parents work for NASA because it was during that time. And so everybody is a lot more invested in the space race, even if it's just subconsciously, than the average American. Now, I can't speak for the average American in 1960, late 60s, because I wasn't there. But I can imagine there was a lot less in competition for your attention at the time. So if you have three or four channels to choose from on television – you know, the news about who's going to get to the moon first was probably pretty buzzy entertainment news at the time, even though it was kind of tied into the Cold War and all of that. Um, there's sort of a fantasy-ish element to it where Stan views himself as being secretly drafted by the U.S. government or by NASA to do the the Apollo landing in private, in secret. So we, we see him ha- or having these, uh, these small interactions with these NASA government types who are giving him information and he sneaks away and is supposedly working with the Na- NASA crew uh, to try and complete this mission for some reason – in his fantasy, he's the only person who can do it. And maybe I don't know how you, uh, where you came on the side of this movie, but I felt like that was the most underbaked, underdeveloped element to the story because it's that's supposed to be our way in as you know, as Stan as a character to get into this. But I feel like the story that Linklater really wants to tell is what it was like growing up near Houston in the 60s and what the culture was like and how it was different then to now and how there was sort of this optimism in the shadows of all of this negative political tension that's happening in the country at that time. There was this optimistic ray of light that was the space race and to be young when that was happening and centers around, you know, a whole summer leading up to that event. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of this is narrated by, by Jack Black. He, he kind of tells us the story without telling us the story, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it has sort of a narration. Um, I, I'm assuming most of our listeners are probably familiar with a Christmas story. Um, it has kind of the same element of like this, um, uh, like autobiographical nostalgia memoir. Um, yeah. Or even the like Wonder a- Years came to mind at certain points. Yeah, yeah. It's it's sort of almost its own kind of coming of age 
uh, genre. Like it's it's sort of a subgenre within that of like the the you know the narrator outside of time and outside of the situation um, that that is able to to give it sort of a um, more of a like an essay type voice, right? Um, which can lean into you know can lean into a lot of nice uh like description uh descriptives and um uh points of phrase that you know are probably a little harder to work into more natural dialogue i know what you're talking about with the 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 sort of childhood fantasia thing um i actually i liked it because i think as a kid that's just kind of how your mind works um right like i i I don't to me it didn't feel weird as a narrative device because it 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 was pretty clear how it was a fantasy and um i like that i don't know i like the way it was done i thought at the beginning it was very stark and like uh it sort of sets the movie up to be something that it's not really Mm -hmm. and then there's this moment of like, well, hold on, this is sort of really what's going on. I didn't have a problem with that. The, my, my only real issue with the movie is, I don't know how I feel about the rotoscope. Yeah, as, I forgot to bring that up in my description, which is kind of a big deal. Is yeah. This is a, another one of Linklater's forays into rotoscope animation, which if nobody's familiar with that term... The, it's, a, it's a very specific type of animation where you take actual photography, where you, you film a sequence with every, everybody, all the actors and everything truly, really there, and then you animate on top of it, and it kind of gives everything this sort of stylized veneer. Uh, he did the movie Waking Life in this style. That was his first one uh, done like that. Um, and then he also did the Philip K. Dick adaptation, A Scanner Darkly in Rotoscope, um, quite a while ago, actually. So he, it's not something he does a lot, but now he's done three. Um, and of course, the animation style has existed long before that. I mean, all the way back to like the Ralph Bocci Hobbit movie and whatnot, but. Yeah, and I, I feel like this comes down closer to the side of probably, like, Waking Life, whereas A Scanner Darkly is meant to, you know, is more of a sci-fi thing. This is meant yeah. to be, uh, you know, it is meant to be this, like, kind of coming-of-age family story. And I, I think I think the purpose behind it is to play into this sort of childhood fantasy thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... In that sense, I think it's effective. I think it does sort of blend the real world with this sort of fantasy world of of this kid's, you know, imagination of this secret NASA mission. Um, I think it's effective as far as that goes. My problem is, I I feel like in general, actors just aren't as emotive with rotoscope, and it's not it's not the actors. I think it's the animation has a hard time capturing, you know, subtlety and facial expressions and things like that. And when you have a cast that's largely children and they they don't have as many sort of distinguishing features, uh, I I think their facial expressions, specifically in this case, 
uh, could tend to come off a little blank. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think some things maybe felt a little subdued and probably would have hit a little harder, been a little more effective with, if by just using live action. I don't know. I think in some cases the rotoscope was a little distracting. And personally, I think that maybe a blend of live action and rotoscope could have been maybe a more interesting path than strict rotoscope animation. Yeah, that would have been there... that would have been tricky because that that could be potentially very jarring. Sure, sure. And and I'm not I'm not I mean, the movie is what it is. Yeah. I just feel like at some sometimes I felt like the rotoscope was counterintuitive. I don't know. I, I it it put me off where I feel like, you know, just a traditional movie um it just felt it, it just feels a little more artificial. Yeah, I think one of the other purposes of it, I think you're right in that it is to blend the the fantasy elements more with the with the uh, traditional narrative elements, and it it, our brain does a lot less work of seeing a kid dressed as an astronaut and not thinking, "Oh, this is ridiculous," or "Oh, this now we are watching a kids movie." You know, funnily enough, because we're in animation, but actually helps to undo that a little bit, uh, makes it less a little less corny. Um, I think the other reason they probably went this direction. Well, I mean, you know, besides it, it's easier to 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 do this rather than you know do it the Tarantino way, where he had to close traffic on like three or four different blocks of. Hollywood and change all of the storefronts to make it look like it's 1968. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of stuff you can do with animation that is going to cut down on the budget significantly. For yeah, sure. and you can recreate late 60s suburbs of Houston a lot easier in animation than than you can there. But I think it also sort of, you know, on a tonal level helps with the sort of nostalgia, like the gauzy nostalgia of it all. Like he, he probably views his own childhood or anyone sort of, you sort of view your own childhood through these, uh, this sort of optimistic point of view, which it probably wasn't anything like if you were an adult living through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way I kind of, I think it, it helps in that. So I think I can see why he implemented this for this project. My thing is that the st- with the, the with the fantasy element of it, I'm fine with him using it, but I it's it's not used very much. Like we you were sort of introduced to it once in the beginning, and then yeah. the movie really from then on is just let me tell you about my life growing up. I don't know if it's his life in particular. I'm sure a lot of this stuff was personal to him. Um, but, you know, what it was like growing up in the 60s as a kid. And, you know, this is what was on TV. And this is the cereal we ate. And these are the car- our favorite cartoons from the time or the television programs at the time. Or this is what it was like going to the drive-in movie theater. And, like, you know, all these little vignettes, these little memories that we get. And they're I all... Mean, I- those are all lovely, but I just would have loved if we're going to have this device of yeah of him 
imagining himself being prepped to go to the moon, that that would have played in more throughout rather than two big moments in the movie. Because no, it, I I agree with you, and I I think also like you know if this is a childhood fantasy, there instead of having this one big fantasy, right? Like mm-hmm. I feel like kids sort of you know most people have sort of a lot of little different fantasies constantly going through their their mind, and and I feel like something like a Christmas story captures that a little bit better, um, you know where sort of each individual vignette or moment will can have these sort of fantastical elements to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like maybe the movie could have benefited more from that. Whereas I, I think what we get with the astronaut stuff is fine. I just think we needed more childhood fantasies peppered throughout because yeah, everything else, like you said, is just pretty much straightforward this is this is what you know this is what childhood was like back then and and i think there were more opportunities for like this one in particular uh, again i'm i'm using a christmas story as a reference here but i feel like this in particular feels more like an essay um and there's not as many sort of individual scenes there's a lot of jack black explaining stuff yeah yeah with, these that sort was, of visual montages underneath. That's my um, second uh, my second beef with the movie is I could have done with about forty percent less narration. I it's delivered fine, it's written fine, but it's to the point where I'm always kind of waiting for the movie to start because yeah, we rarely that's, that's go I mean, into like, scene like it. We we kind of just skim along the surface of these moments, and that's. To exactly. an extent, that's what Linklater's done his whole career. Um, whether it be, you know, Slacker, Days of Confused, or or the before movies, or Boyhood. There's a lot of stuff that reminded me narratively of this of that movie. I think that he he's actually really good at that, but he can but when you throw on that voiceover on top of it, like imagine watching Boyhood and the whole time we're hearing the Stand By Me voiceover narration delivered throughout the entire movie. Yeah, I I just wanted the movie. I, there's a couple scenes in this movie. There's, they're few and far between, but there's like three or four actual scenes where the narration stops and we see characters interact with each other. And yes, they're they're great. What I, I I, I would have loved of. like uh, like I said about forty percent less narration and just you know lead us into the scene if you need to, but then at some point uh, go away, Jack Black, get out of the booth. Let's just watch this play out. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I I agree with you, and I I don't think um I don't think Jack Black's the problem. I think the problem is the script and and ha- just how much is more interested in reminiscing than, yeah, just going into the scene. Like, there's this whole setup where he explains what a hard-ass this principal is and and how they, like, abuse these kids. And it's, like, this setup for the scene where, you know, he's going to, like, to beat them or whatever. Or or just set up for the scene of an interaction with this principal. And then it just skips on to the next description of life in the 60s. And then... You know, again, like, well, we went to the swimming pool and 
okay, just show us the characters interacting at the swimming pool. I, right. I just, yeah, I like I said, to me, this feels more like an essay than a movie. It, it's almost, and it's, it's one of the things I, lo- I like about Richard Linklater as a director is that he's, even at this age and having made all the movies he has, he's always experimenting and he's always playing around with narrative convention. And, and I think because of that, he has a lot of movies that are inconsistent quality wise, but Mm -hmm. I'm always going to watch what he does because every once in a while that, uh, churns out something very unique and of its own. And, and I, and there are elements of this movie that are, uh, unique, but this movie almost it's, it's animated and it's narrative, but it's also almost a documentary. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's almost an autobiogra- autobiography. Like it's it kind of exists in this this uh free-floating space between all of those narrative conventions and I'm glad that the he arrived here the way he did, but I'm not going to say that the movie comes out unscathed in his attempt to subvert or to uh to play around. I mean I think that some of this movie is kind of boring because of it, to be honest. Like, I like, I think everything you are saying is absolutely true. I don't think this is the the best movie I've seen by Richard Linklater by a long shot. Um, I do think it's interesting. I do think there's some interesting moments. I, I do appreciate how much he interjects an adult's political mind within the this sort of innocent childhood political free fantasy mm-hmm. um i i think all of that is interesting i just think ultimately as a movie it it kind of doesn't totally hold together it, it just kind of feels like something a little less than all of the sum of its parts it doesn't really feel like a full it doesn't really feel like a movie it doesn't really feel like an essay it doesn't really feel like anything it just feels sort of not half-baked but like it like i feel like the just the impact is lessened than it could have been um had it just taken maybe a harder line in any direction um i don't think it's bad by any means but i don't know who i would recommend this to it's it's kind of an interesting movie like i think if you like richard linklater you'd probably like it but i could see a lot of people giving up interest after the first jump back because i feel like there's not a whole lot else to hold your attention if you don't have nostalgia nostalgia driving yeah yeah i would say anybody who grew up during this time will probably love it because they'll I mean, unless they're looking for strictly a common narrative thread, but if they can... Well, I feel like the people from this generation who live this probably are looking for that. Probably. I don't know. I mean, I, I could see there's a certain type of person who lived during this time, either of the end of the baby boomer generation or the beginning of the Gen X generation, who will watch this and just love reliving this era and this time or whatever in terms of like coming of age movies. 
I've seen worse. I've seen better. It's 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 fine. Um, there are some fun performances in here. I really like the the actor who plays the the mother and the father mm-hmm. in this. Uh, yeah, Bill I Wise like and Lietti. I think they're they both give us more. Uh, they they just get an opportunity to give more of a character performance. I think than than most of the others. Yeah, I agree. I agree. They 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 really stand out, but they are they're also. Like, there's things about them other than just their role. Like, the idea that the father is, he works at NASA, and isn't that so cool? Well, not really, because everyone's parent works there, and he's really just a pencil pusher. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, that idea of wanting your father to be, to be an astronaut, you're in such close proximity to where other people's fathers may actually be astronauts. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting idea. It, it, not entirely utilized. Uh, Lietti, I think she's just great at kind of being the matriarch here and sort of cutting through the bullshit. And she's a fun, toughest nails lady. Kind of goes the same for Zachary Levi and Glenn Powell. Like they, they get the most actual scene work in the movie. Yeah. Um, within this sort of fantasy. And I, I think, they get to, they get the closest to what could be considered characters, really, besides the parents, which almost gets buried under rotoscope paint, but that's what I was complaining about earlier. You know what would be the the ultimate version, or the most appropriate way to see this movie? It's not at home on Netflix, I'll tell you that. It's a drive-in. That would be a choice? Um... I would say it would be at the uh, Laser Dome, if your city still has one. Okay. At the Planetarium. If this was, if you went to go see this movie in a planetarium with the seat back, and it's then that semi-educational element of the movie would feel totally appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Uh, I, I, I buy that. Sure. Um, it's okay. That's my... Yeah, it's fine. It's, it's not, uh, bad. It's not uh, offensive in any way. It's not... No. ...worth complaining about, but it's also... I feel like I've seen, like, you know, this type of thing done, you know, just this sort of memoir-style, uh, visual essay done uh, just way better. We've seen it way way better by this director. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. but uh, you know, I'm impressed him for still going out and making his the weird movies he wants to make. Yeah. True. Fair enough. Uh, okay, that is the episode. This will be the final tradish episode for 2022. So uh, we're going to come back in a few weeks and give you your, our lists, our top ten lists of the year and wrap it all up. Uh, so if anybody has a top five or a top three, or you just want to, you know, shoot us a DM on whatever social media you might find us on, or on email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You want to tell us what your favorite movie of the year was, or your least favorite, or your best movie going experience, whatever, you can hit us up there. 
Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at MacGuffinPod. DMs are open there as well. You can also leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review over on whatever podcast app you use to listen to us, uh, uh, whether it's uh, iTunes or Spotify, Pocket Cast, Player.fm, Google Podcasts. Um, If there's a rating system, utilize it. And you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VCCassidy. Read the other reviews and articles and probably the lists coming up over from the rest of the MacGuffin staff by visiting the homepage, mcguff.in. The movie reviews, I write for the Idaho State Journal. Um, Google Idaho State Journal movie reviews, you'll pull up the archives. You'll see my name on some of those articles, and those are the ones I wrote. What about you? You can follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid, uh, even though I don't update much social media at all anymore. Um, also, follow my improv show, Improv vs. Stand Up, on Instagram. Um, we're done with shows for the year, but uh, coming back next year, we'll be doing shows on Saturday nights at Mockingbird Improv in San Diego. And that is the episode. If I ever meet Jared Leto, I'm going to whoop his kombucha brewing ass. Bye.